following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. All right, welcome this evening. We're glad that you're joining us uh, in person or online tonight. Hope that you're able to uh, get the technology to work fine for you. It's hard to believe we just spent an hour taking requests and praying. Uh, just like that, the hour went by. So now we turn our attention. If you would take your Bibles, please. If you don't have a Bible, can you fetch one from the back uh, or, uh, or on your telephone or whatever? And turn it to Matthew chapter 5 this evening, please. We looked last time at Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 uh, through 16, and we saw that believers are expressed or described using two metaphors of salt and, what was the other one? Anybody? You guys, young people, remember? Did he say? No? Maybe you weren't here that, that time. Light. Yeah, salt and light. Okay? You know, we are the salt of the earth, the Lord Jesus says, if we are his followers. We're like salt, and has to, this has to do with the flavor of it. Not just the preservative power, but the flavor, the distinction that it makes from the world and uh, how we are different and uh, are, are in, a, you know, in, a, in a way, if we are impure, like impure salt, then we are in some measure useless to the Lord. And he says in the metaphor, hey, you know, uh, people like that, salt like that is just meant to be uh, or good for throwing out into the, to the path and to be trod upon by Amen. So believers are supposed to be salt. We're supposed to be pure, uh, have more purities than impurities, uncontaminated by the prevailing sins of the world. And let me tell you, uh, I don't know, don't, don't let me tell you, you already know. That's a hard task, isn't it? To remain uncontaminated by the sins of the world. It's always a battle where you have to have your, you know, your force fields up or whatever to keep that uh, stuff out. You really have to ask the Lord to help you to be pure. Uh, You don't want to become useless uh, for the Lord. Secondly, the Lord Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount that we are to be like light. You are the light of the world. And I I sometimes think about this and think in terms of the darkness that is around us morally or ethically, the darkness, the absence of God's holiness. I uh, sometimes have mentioned before when I've traveled to certain places one place comes to mind in particular when I was doing some engineering work in Germany and uh, just walking around the town. I was actually looking for a church's midweek service and there was, it was just dark. It just felt like heavy to me. Uh, of course, I was aware that could be complicated by the fact that I was by myself in an unfamiliar place and you know, not with my family or loved ones, but still there was something when you have these humongous Catholic edifices with nobody there. They're just empty buildings, historical, hundreds of years old buildings, but there's no life there. It's all darkness. Well, it is with uh, similar in our own land, my friends. We have leaders that lead in darkness. We have people who follow in darkness. We have media that... um, gives news in darkness, they're driven out of darkness, they're motivated out of darkness, they don't know. And if the believers 
who are the only ray of light in the world, are darkness. How great is that darkness? How great is the darkness of the world? We have to be light. And the Lord says we are light. Light is uh, also used as a metaphor for God's holiness. So we're calling the world to, to godliness, to holiness. The world needs this light. Otherwise, it exists in this pure darkness. And, uh, you know, darkness tries to overtake the light, doesn't it? It cannot ultimately prevail. Even the smallest light prevails in some way. But they try to, the world tries to snuff out the light, tries to close the light, tries to put a chain on the door of the church that's the light, put a fence around that light, close the church, put the pastor in jail, even in this Western culture. And that is, my friends, persecution against Christians. However you want to call it, whatever you want to, to uh, try to explain it away as, it is persecution and it is the, the darkness trying to snuff out the light. Men love darkness rather than light, don't they? It's more comfortable for them. It doesn't show their blemishes so, does it? When you're in the dark, you cannot see the blemishes. Uh, morally speaking, you cannot see the blemishes of your soul unless there is a bright light to shine in comparison to it. The light shining from God through his people is not designed by God to be hidden. It's supposed to shine from the top of the highest point in the city. It's not supposed to be covered by a basket, but to be set on a lampstand and shined throughout the church. Why do you think we have the lights at the highest point? <laughs> uh, why do you put a lamp on the table so you can see it? You don't necessarily put it on the floor. You know, only times we have that is like when the electricity is out and we need light, you know, in some place where we don't normally need it and we stick the light in the middle of the floor so we can at least get something uh, out there to the rest of the room so you can see the floor and don't trip on things, but that's not the normal condition of things. So we asked ourselves last time to, uh, at, to, to taste ourselves and to uh, put a digital light meter to our, to our souls and see how, how bright we are. Uh, what, kind of, uh, what kind of light are we, are we putting out? You know, I, uh, there's one particular... Uh, light bulb that I have at the house that it, it keeps coming up like a, I don't know, like a bad egg or something. It just, you know, it just keeps returning. And I find it because I plug it in and I realize, man, this thing has promised so many lumens and it's like a little night light. I need something more than that. So I unscrew it and set it aside and then put a proper one in and then that one comes back. I should just throw it out, but I hate to do that, you know. Um, but it's too dim. It's not good for much. You know, especially as your eyes get older, you want more light. And so, you know, why, why, why are our lives like dim, like they sometimes are? So we asked ourselves those questions. And Jesus commanded that we shine the light of God before people. We uh, flavor the world as salt would flavor a piece of meat or a, a soup or whatever. <clears throat> And, and with that, he says, let your light so shine before men, verse 16, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. We correlated this with 1 Peter 2, 12, that there, are, there will be people who will see your good works and glorify God in the day of visitation, as it's called. In the day when God visits them, they will glorify him, and in part because they will have some connection to the testimony of Christian people who are kind and loving to them, who help them, who are benevolent, who preach the gospel to them, 
and who were genuine people, as opposed to all the people around who may be uh, empty or hypocrites or liars or deceivers and so on. So there are those people out there who will come to faith in Christ and our good works can help effectuate that element, that thing in their lives. We now turn to verses 17 through 20, 17 through 20. If you'd focus your attention there this evening in chapter 5 and verse 17, the scripture says, Jesus speaking, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law until all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, when the, when the Lord Jesus says the law and the prophets, he's referring to the whole Old Testament of the Bible. And when he does this, among other things, he is saying the whole Old Testament has my stamp. It has my imprimatur. It has my approval, my seal, my mark of authenticity. It is God's word. The law and the prophets refers to the Mosaic law from Genesis and Exodus, those first five books of the Bible, through all the way the writings, all the way through the prophets, all the way through the minor prophets to the end, Genesis to Malachi. Or, if you know the Hebrew Bible, Second Chronicles is arranged at the end of that order of the canon. Same books, just a different order. Sometimes this is called, this, this section of the canon of Scripture from Genesis to Malachi is called the Prophets and Moses. Acts 26.3 uses, or 23 uses that. Sometimes the Bible speaks of the writings of Moses. Other times it uses the uh, Psalms, mentions the Psalms, not just rela- even related to the 150 Psalms, but to the whole section of the writings uh, of the Old Testament. Luke 24 uses that. Uh, We remember Jesus talking to the disciples and said, don't you know that the the law and the Psalms or Moses and the Psalms spoke of me this way? Really speaking of the entire Old Testament. So he says, I did not come to destroy that body of truth. Rather, he came to fulfill So what Jesus is doing here is he is dealing with an objection that he knows will be made against him and his followers. Listen to this. An objection that is baseless, that is false, and arises from somebody not listening to what he's saying. Boy, that's a a pandemic today. You know, politician says A, and news media says politician said B or some snippet of A that makes them sound like they said something entirely different. This is what Jesus is talking about. He's, 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 he's kind of insulating his teaching against that ahead of time by dealing with this objection. The objection is, it sounds, Jesus, like you're destroying the law of Moses. You're going to tell us something else, something new and different. They suppose 
perhaps that Jesus is arrogantly replacing the law. This objection resurfaced several times in the New Testament. Think of them with me, if you will. Remember in John chapter 2 when the Pharisees and Jesus talked about destroying the temple? And what Jesus meant there clearly was that if you destroy, if you destroy this temple then I will raise it up in three days. But that was twisted around so that in Matthew 26, 61, they brought false witnesses that said, this man said he would destroy the temple and raise it up in three days, which is totally the opposite of them destroying his temple and him raising up in three days. But they, they totally misunderstood what he said and, and, and what he meant. John chapter 2, as we alluded to. So they said, here's Jesus. He's going to destroy this temple. And with it, obviously, he's going to destroy the sacrifices and the law and all that that goes along with it. So that was one. You know anyone else that was accused of destroying the law or the temple in the Bible? Acts chapter 7, Stephen. In Acts chapter 6, actually, uh, is when the charges were made. I'll just go there if you want to follow me there in your Bible, Acts chapter 6. You see what is happening here is that the accusers are accusing Jesus and Stephen, and we'll see one other target of the same accusation. They are accusing them of destroying what they're building up and what they're fulfilling and what they're accusing these people of, they're guilty of, 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 ref, of that by reflection. They're actually doing the destroying. But they turn language around. See, they change the words and, so, and the meaning so that it becomes something opposite of what it really is. And Stephen in Acts 6.14 is faced with this. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, that's the temple, and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. So now Stephen is following in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus. Nothing could be further from the truth for Stephen. Stephen is not concerned to destroy the temple or the law of Moses. He's actually saying Jesus fulfills the law like Jesus himself here is saying. But and in fact, he's saying you guys are the destroyers. You guys are the ones that are stiff-necked, that are hard-hearted, that killed the prophets. You killed Jesus, and you people are just like your fathers. And, of course, they couldn't stand that. That was Stephen, by the way, shining the very bright flashlight on their souls and saying to them, look what you guys have done. Oh, they hated that. And then in Acts chapter 21, the apostle Paul is accused of the same crime. In Acts chapter 21 and verse 28. Remember, Paul was arrested in the temple, and that's what began his whole ordeal to get him all the way to Rome by Acts chapter 28. And all the trials that uh, came in the middle of that. Acts 21, 28. These people that troubled Paul and drug him out cried out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people. That's false. Against the law. That's false. Against this place. That's false. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. 
That's false. Everything that they said was wrong. Yeah, whenever you hear a mob saying something, you can pretty much guarantee that they're all confused. They don't know what they're talking about. They're just living on emotions. And the kernels of truth that they may have there left in their speech, in their sayings, need to be ferreted out from all the error that is there. Unfortunately, the Pharisees accused Jesus, they accused Stephen, they accused Paul of a similar crime. But that was not at all what these men were doing. It's strange to us Christians how somebody could think that what Jesus was doing was destructive or what Paul was doing was destructive or what Stephen was doing was destructive. In fact, as he explains at the end of verse number 17, he didn't come to destroy, just the opposite. He came to fulfill. What Moses said about Jesus in the prophets, I mean in the right, in the, in the Pentateuch, and the prophets said in the prophets and David and Solomon said in the Psalms and Asaph and all the others, uh, whoever wrote about him and Job and the major prophets and the minor prophets, whatever they said about Jesus, he came to do. And then what? He did it. He came to fulfill it. Those books of the Old Testament, 39 of them, promise that Jesus will come, he will suffer, and he will be what? Glorified. He will suffer, die, rise again, and he will be glorified, given a portion with the great, as Isaiah 53 says at the end. And, and so he's to give his soul an offering for sin. He's to rise again from the dead. And that he did. It's always, it's always troubled me. In fact, I had some time ago when I said something about the New, the New Testament and Christian doctrine fulfilling, completing the Old Testament, a Jewish person took great offense to that because they said, uh, it's highly offensive that you would say, my faith needs completing. Their own text says that there's coming a prophet and a priest and a king and one who would suffer and be glorified and a kingdom and all of those things. Their own text says that. It is not, in their mind, it's not completed yet. And, of course, in our mind, it's not totally completed yet, but we're farther along the path than what they see because they've rejected the Messiah. There's nothing wrong with saying that prophecies in the Old Testament need to be fulfilled. In fact, you notice what the Lord Jesus says here? Till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or tittle will by any means pass from the law until it's all fulfilled. It has to be fulfilled. In other words, it's not entirely fulfilled yet. It has to be completed. It has to be brought to fruition that's just what the text says. God says, I have made or appointed you a priest in the order of Melchizedek. I will raise up for myself a prophet like you from among my brothers. I will rise, raise up a faithful priest after the failure of the priests in the Aaronic priesthood. God promised all those things and they must come to pass. Jesus tells us here that no part of the Bible will ever go unfulfilled. Now, sometimes you'll get focused on this jot and tittle idea. I'm not going to do that today except to say these are just small little strokes of the writing of the Hebrew letters, little dots, 
little, you know, it's like our dotting of I's and crossing of T's, the little parts of the letters there. Those will all be fulfilled. The scripture has continuing authority. Its prophecies will never fail. Its truths will never become false. There are no errors in it. There are no shortcomings in it. As a result, any new revelation that is given can only fulfill it or add to it without changing it. It cannot undo, alter, or change the Older Testament. Any kind of change to the terms and conditions of the Old Testament promises or a change in meaning or an escape from the original meaning is simply not compatible with what Jesus says here. Jesus basically is saying here that you have to have a literal, grammatical, conservative, hermeneutic that is approached to interpreting the Bible. You must have that because those promises cannot change. When somebody says, well, those promises, yeah, they've been altered, they've been done away, they're basically saying Jesus is not telling the truth here. I'm, I feel very strongly about that. I don't want to come across as, as um, you know, uh, what mean about it, I'll say. But that's what some theologians say. God has promised certain things to Israel, but he's not going to do it. It's all changed now. Those promises weren't really literal. They were just spiritual metaphors or something like that. No, my friends, they were not. Otherwise, this statement of Jesus is not true. Jesus is saying, I, didn't, I did not come to destroy. I did not come to change. I came to fulfill. The change would mean to destroy the original intention and meaning of the promises and directives of that law, and it cannot be done. So consequently, he says in verse 19, anybody who advocates breaking the law or does so will be reduced in standing in Christ's kingdom. This is why it was so vexing to Jesus when, let's say, the Pharisees came to him and said, why do your your, your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders by not washing their hands? And Jesus turns to them and says, why do you nullify the law of God by saying that whatever my parents might profit from me by caring for them is a gift to God, it's korban, it's going to the temple, and I can't follow the law anymore. They've elevated the traditions of men to the place of God, and they've taken the words of God, and they've de-elevated them to a place of option, a place of command, and that's what they were doing. They were breaking some of those commandments and teaching men to do so. They would be called least if they were at all even in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever did and teaches those commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So this offers a little bit of an interpretive difficulty for us, but let me just encourage you, if you're teaching the Bible to your family, teaching it to children in the church, teaching it to adults in the church. You're encouraging them to keep it, to obey it, to follow it. God will reward you for that. That is a good thing. Don't lose heart at doing that. If you're teaching yourself the Bible, that's good. You keep those things that he has taught us and don't undo them or seek to just put them aside. The difficulty here is, for me, as I think about our 
understanding of Scripture is what about those segments of the law that are not applicable really in any kind of way now? You know, the dietary laws, the Sabbath laws, the circumcision law, and those sorts of things. We don't teach those. We don't practice those. Well, I mean, we, we might practice some of them, but we don't practice them as if they're commanded or necessary for our spiritual life and growth and health and all of that. And so let me give you a brief answer to that question before we close tonight. Um, First of all, let's be mindful of the fact that Jesus is speaking to an audience at the time of disciples and those listening with the disciples uh, there in the crowd who are living under the law of Moses at this time. There is no New Testament at this time. So the issue that I'm bringing up of, well, what about the new, later New Testament teaching that obsoletes some of the Old Testament? You know, it's fulfilled, it's done, it's, it's passed. Uh, it's not, well, it's not obligatory uh, on us. Why? Well, you have to first realize Jesus is speaking to people who are present at that time, who are under that law, and he's saying to them, don't you be messing with this. You know, you let God teach you what you need to do, but don't you be messing with the law. So that's one aspect of it. We're asking a question that comes after Matthew chapter 5. It comes in, you know, 30, 40, 50 years later and and on 2,000 years later now. That's one element of the answer. Second element of the answer, the Jewish law was never given to Gentiles. Jewish law was not required of Gentiles ever. I mean, it was in the sense that if they became proselytes of Israel, they had to participate but it wasn't given to the whole world. God's not saying to the whole world, you need to be circumcised. He's not saying to the whole world, you need to have this dietary requirement in order to distinguish you from the nations. Why? Because they were the nations. They weren't the Jews. They weren't God's specially chosen people. So you have that element in there as well, that it wasn't given to the Gentiles. And then also... Uh, you have the whole issue of the law being fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ. He completed it. And then he gave us by imputation the righteousness which we could not attain in keeping the law. The disciples in the church recognized early on, look, why would we put a yoke upon the disciples of trying to keep the law of Moses which we couldn't even keep ourselves? That doesn't make any sense. The point of the law was to point out sin It was not to make a man righteous. So we are imputed the righteousness of Christ. And in this way, by teaching what is clear instruction in later revelation that supersedes or obsoletes what came earlier, it does not make us guilty of violating what verse 19 says. And that goes for Jews and for Gentiles. So when I say today, You do not need to observe the Jewish dietary laws. It's because Jesus fulfilled all of that perfectly and imputes his righteousness to us and taught us that nothing going in makes a man unclean. What makes a man unclean is what comes out of the heart, the wicked thoughts, the bad words, all those things, the immoralities. That is what makes us unclean. That is what we need to be purified from. That's what we need to be like salt and light in regard to. So, those who teach God's commands, God's word, the New Testament, those parts of the Old Testament that are 
you know, directly relevant to us, all of that. Teach the whole Bible that they're great in the kingdom of heaven. And so they were at that time, rewarded with greatness. Finally, Jesus lays on them a seemingly impossible standard. He says to them, For I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And I want to deal a little bit more with the connection of this verse to the, net, to the previous ones another time, but let me just say this about that. The righteousness of the Pharisees seemed to be very high. From all external appearances, they were quite something to behold in terms of their religious observation. But in reality, they were frauds. Their righteousness was merely external, an appearance. However, the appearance of righteousness was something that the Lord Jesus said, you must far exceed. The mere appearance is something you must far exceed if you have any hope to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Righteousness had to be not only or merely external, it had to be a thoroughgoing characteristic of one's life. And so the Lord has dealt with that already to some extent when he talked about being mourning over sin and poor in spirit and hungering and thirsting for righteousness and being merciful, these internal characteristics that work themselves out in external behavior But he's also going to talk about adultery in the heart, murder in the heart, marriage being sacred. He's going to talk about forbidding of oaths. He's going to talk about your attitude of going the second mile, of loving your enemies, of how to pray, of how to give, of how to fast, internal and external behaviors. He's going to talk about worry, anxiety, Matthew chapter 6, talk about putting the kingdom of God first, all these things that are incumbent upon a believer in Jesus Christ. What this would do to the audience is drive them to despair that the works that they do will never be enough to make them pleasing before God. And this is where poverty of spirit and hungering and thirsting for righteousness comes to play. Works-based righteousness was insufficient to solve the impossibly high standard of divine righteousness. In fact, it gets only worse. Matthew 5.48 says, Therefore you shall be perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. What do you do with that? You know, uh, The poor in spirit recognize that they need something else. Those who mourn over their sin, that, that there, there's something that is righteous. Righteousness has to come from another source. It can't come from within me. Something to constitute me right before God has to come from somewhere. It can't come from within because I've got such a dirty heart. The law always had the function, by the way, of pointing out sin. The law can never make anyone righteous. And so Jesus had to come and fulfill it and then share his righteousness with his people so that they could exceed the righteousness, the apparent righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Don't, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying they were righteous really at all. They just had you know, kind of a mere external appearance. We need to have real righteousness, real internal love for God, fear of God, 
a pure heart, meekness, all those things. That's what we need. And uh, Jesus is saying, look, you are going to need something beyond yourself for that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would guide us in our thinking about this passage. Help us to recognize, Lord, that indeed these these injunctions are, are those things that mark a believer's life. They are not things that we do or achieve or earn merit with, or with which we earn merit, I should say. Rather, they are the characteristics of those who have repented and are working out with the fruits of repentance in their lives, that work of Christ. Lord, help us to rejoice that in Christ we do have a righteousness that exceeds that of any Pharisee or of any righteous man, and we can have a confidence in heaven, utter confidence, because you reward righteousness. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.